pray. Heavenly Father, through the message of Jesus, the one we crucified, but the one who also defeated death and ascended into heaven, through that message, send your Holy Spirit deep into our hearts to affect our innermost being and to influence our external lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is a big deal. Christmas trees, lights, buying and receiving gifts, everybody celebrates Christmas. Easter is a big deal. Not quite as big as Christmas, but judging by church attendance, the second most significant day within the church's year. And of course, we have Fabergé eggs, Cadbury eggs, chocolate Easter bunnies, boiled eggs with marvelous colors and designs. Not everybody in the world celebrates Easter, but they certainly take note of it. But when it comes to Pentecost, the world and even the Christian church is largely unaffected, unimpressed. And yet Pentecost is perhaps as significant as the other two. For it's the birthday of the Christian church of which you are a member. So how is the church born? Well, that's quite simple. It's through individuals who are reborn through the message of Christ, crucified, raised, and ascended. Well, how are we reborn? I want to primarily look at Peter's sermon, but do you notice that Jesus stormed into his disciples' hearts and minds on Pentecost Day, that Acts 1-1 passage, why I put that there, is the, the verb is so key. Okay, in my first book, The Gospel of Luke, I told you about all the things Jesus began to do and to say. What is the hint there? It's the elephant in the room. If he began during his earthly ministry, he is continuing to do and to say things through his disciples, through his church, that will affect and influence and transform lives and hearts for all eternity. Peter preaches this magnificent sermon, and the punchline is this. All the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus' death on a cross, his resurrection, his ascension, it's all part of God's plan. 
And through that message, through that reality, people see that Jesus is alive and well and living in his disciples. The unparalleled person of all history, the king of the world, the Lord of the universe, lives within us as proof that Jesus is alive and well, and he lives within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to go into a little more detail about Peter's sermon. And he really hits his stride when he whacks the crowd with a spiritual two-by-four, and he says, you crucified God. You killed God. You eliminated God from your lives. Does that strike you? Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying with our schemes and our schedules, we have our life all planned out. We know how it should go. And when things don't go the way we want, we raise our hands to heaven and we say, why, God? You're interfering with my plans. You're upsetting my schedule. I have things in control here. Stay out of my business. Knock it off. Paul in Romans 5 says it in very blunt and direct fashion. He says, we are God's enemies. By nature, we don't want God entering into and interfering with our well-thought-out lives. We don't want God to upset our plans. Does that strike you? Does that scare you that that's your human nature? That if you had been part of the Good Friday crowd, you would have cried with the rest, crucify him, get him out of here. Eliminate this interferer. Away with him. We've had enough of his nonsense, his thinking he knows better than I do what's best for my life. Nail him to a cross. Spit on him. Crown him with thorns. Beat him with reeds and scourge him with a whip. We're tired of him coming into the church and telling us how things should be run. We're tired of him coming into our lives and telling us what our lives are about. We know better than him. Nail him to the cross. Get rid of him. We realize we are a lot more wicked than we ever thought. Can you think of anything worse than killing God? 
the creator of the universe, the Lord of life. the master and ruler of the universe? If you can think of a worse sin, I'd like to hear it. But that is where we're at. With the Pentecost crowd, we realize we don't want Jesus in our lives. We don't want him Interfering in our plans, upsetting our schedules. If that has hit home with the Pentecost crowd, your, your hearts are cut. They're wounded, they're bruised. Is that really who I am? Yes, it is. That's really who you are. And they cry out in desperation, what shall we do? And Peter says, "Um, let's back up a little bit here. You can't do anything. The only thing you can do is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repenting is not really something that you do. It's something the Holy Spirit does in us. And repentance is changing our trust from ourselves to Jesus. Changing our faith from believing in our abilities, our strength, to trusting in Jesus and what he has done. And be baptized. Now, you have experienced the Spirit's watery word. And I might rephrase this for you today. Remember your baptism. Recall your baptism and how it connects you in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Incidentally, that's what Christianity is all about. It's about having this personal, intimate, powerful, energizing, exciting relationship with Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. Your life will be made right in God's grace and mercy and in Christ's cross. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time thing, but every time we recall that in our baptisms we have been buried with Christ. Our old nature has been put to death, and with him we have been raised to newness of life. And then Peter says something that I hope you treasure. He says, the promise is for you and your children. No more of this silly talk about whether infant baptism is valid. The promise is for you and for them too. Do you know that in Jesus' day, children were not considered to be people? 
until they reached a certain age, they were considered things. Uh, it went something like this. They would categorize the world, and they'd say there's inanimate objects. Well, that's like rocks. There's living objects that are inanimate. That's like trees. There's living things that are animate. That's like bears, tigers, lions. Oh, my. And then there's living things that are animate and talk. But they're not really people. And that's kids. What Peter says revolutionizes the world. Kids are important. And he says it's also for those who are here and those who are far off. In other words, it's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for those who are the chosen people of God and those who are on the outside looking in. And I'm going to give you a test right now. Check your Bible version. I need to offer a little bit of a Greek lesson. In Greek, a verb can be middle or passive, and the translator has to decide which it is. So, middle is, I kill myself. Passive is, I was killed. Got it? So look at that verse in your Bible. I've only found the New American Standard who translates it as a passive. And I'm thinking, oh boy, human nature is really rising up and showing itself here. Most versions translate it, save yourselves from this corrupt, do-it-yourself generation. New American Standard correctly translates it, be saved from this corrupt I'm the boss generation. Are you starting to get it? Well, if not, there's a big conclusion here. And remember those three things. First of all, a recognition of the depth and the horror of my sin. Secondly, to turn away from myself and trusting myself to trusting Christ. And thirdly, forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In 2013, uh, Sandy and I went to Orlando, Florida to attend the Gospel Coalition meeting. And Tim Keller is always the most popular speaker. We would have breakout sessions usually in a side room with maybe 50 to 100 people. His breakout section was in the main auditorium with probably four to 5,000 people. And here's what he said. He said, one of the things I've done in my life is I've studied revivals. What it is that regenerates and enlivens a church. And he said, I've discovered three things. First of all, the message of our wickedness, our depravity, 
our sin and the proclamation of God's undeserved grace, mercy, forgiveness, and gift of righteousness wakes up sleepy Christians. You know what a sleepy Christian is? In the most extreme sense, it's a Christmas and Easter Christmas Christian. They really don't need Jesus, but it's nice to show up once in a while, just in case. But the only way you wake up sleepy Christians is by showing them the horror of their sin of their wickedness, of their rebellion, of their enmity with God. And then the undeserved, unmatched grace and love and forgiveness and acceptance of God in Christ. So number one, the secret to revival is wake up sleepy Christians. Number two, I don't know of a better word, this isn't really the best, but convert nominal Christians. Christians in name only. You know what a Christian in name only is? When I think that if I do this or that, God owes me. That if I come to church and say my prayers and read my Bible and put money in the offering plate, uh, then God owes me. God will love me and make my life prosperous. Uh, the most overt form of this today is prosperity gospel. If you do your best for God, God will do his best for you. It's like priming the pump. And how do you change nominal Christians, Christians in name only? By showing them that it's not their works that precipitate God's love, but it's God's love that transforms their hearts and changes their lives. Okay, let me pause here. Uh, if you've got any names in your brain and you say, oh, that's, that's a sleepy Christian, oh, that's a nominal Christian, don't do that. That's not your job. It's not my job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince them that they have not really accepted the utter depravity of their human nature and the unlimited, unconditional forgiveness of God apart from anything we've done. So what's number three? If you are in a church where sleepy Christians wake up and nominal Christians are converted, it becomes a powerful magnet. People are drawn to that church because they see individuals who are not judgmental, individuals who do not do this or that to control and manipulate God. They see people who know, well, let's put it this way. They're more wicked than they ever thought, and they're more loved than they ever imagined. When people take that to heart, you don't have folks coming to church just at Christmas and Easter or when the sun's not shining. I always call church weather. It has to be cloudy with a light drizzle. <laughs> Otherwise, there's more fun things to do. 
But if you recognize your utter depravity and your great need for God to enter your life as Jesus Christ and to forgive you and love you and accept you, not because you precipitated it, but because he loved you. It's an amazing statement in Scripture. God loves you because he loves you. What? That's a circular argument. Well, if you're married, you love someone not to get this or that, not because you need a foot rub, but you love someone because you love them. Got it? That simple message can transform any church to be dynamic, a magnet, an attraction in the community. They look at those people and they say, whoa, look how humble they are. You better believe we're humble. We're bad at the core. Remember Krabby Apple on Howdy Doody? Rotten to the core. That's us. And then we look at Jesus and we see a love beyond our wildest imagination, a love we don't deserve, and yet it's unconditional. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this Pentecost Sunday, show us ourselves. Send your Holy Spirit to reveal to us our deep depravity, our rebellion, our enmity against you. And then send that same spirit to show us Jesus, dying on the cross, raised from the grave, ascended into heaven. We ask in his name. Amen.